Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello. My name is Gary Mansfield. And this is the Ministry of Arts podcast, where each week I'll be speaking to a different artist. Now let's begin by banging these bongos. Hello and welcome to episode number 65 of the Ministry of Arts podcast. Well, this is a bit of a poxy old situation we've got ourselves into. When things come along like this that makes us change our everyday living, we do find it a little hard to adapt. It does sort of bring our vulnerabilities to the surface. We've already started to see some positives come out of this situation. And I think a lot more of us are starting to be aware of those around us. The more at-risk members of our society are starting to come to terms with with what's happening in this situation and realising that that they may have to self-isolate for quite some time. So even today, as I recalled this, which is Mother's Day, I phoned my mum earlier on this afternoon to say that I'll be popping up with some bits and pieces for her to leave outside. And is she likely to be in? And jokingly, she replied, "Uh, I don't know, I'm going out round about all end of June. So a little bit of laughter may not cure anything, but it'll make it feel hell of a lot better. Anyway, back to this podcast. For a while now, I've been producing this podcast every 10 days. So in light of social distancing, each new episode will be 14 days apart. I'm lucky enough to have this and two other episodes pre-recorded, which will take me up to about the first week of May. These podcasts have always been recorded face to face. But with this current situation, I may well look at recording them via Skype. The audio quality may not be as good. But on the upside, it will enable me to speak to artists that are a little further afield than I was previously able to travel. This week, we're bringing together both science and art. And I'm taking you to meet world-leading holographer Rob Monday. 
Now, Rob is not only at the forefront of these sculptural images, but he even invented some of the machines that they're produced on. Rob Mundy has such a reputation in this field. When artist Chris Levine received a commission from the Jersey Heritage Trust to produce a holographic portrait of the Queen, he contacted Rob Mundy to create it for him as a 50-50 collaboration. The final image has also gone on to be used on the island's £100 note. Yes, £100 note. Quite some accolade, right? The Jersey Heritage Trust later asked Rob to produce the first holographic postage stamp, this time as an individual artist. When I went to record this podcast, I actually saw the lenticular of that portrait in question, and it was absolutely breathtaking. So come with me to hear more of this amazing process with holographer Rob Monday. And it's only about giving one image to one eye and another image to the other eye. Yeah, because they're both offset slightly, aren't so they? So each eye has to see a separate image from two different views. And there's lots of different ways to achieve that uh, using various glasses. And in fact, lenticular images, which is one of the things you know I do, um, uses exactly the same technique. It's the lenses on the actual image itself that... Um, project the yeah. images out so so that your eyes are seeing two different images um, they're basically called auto stereoscopic images um, and your brain makes up the three-dimensional image um, it's interesting because you know I talk a lot about light sculpture and then you say what is light sculpture and light sculpture can be lots of different things but um, when it comes to lenticular imaging as opposed to a true hologram uh, there is no sculpture at all it, the whole sculpture is inside your head yeah you know then it doesn't exist in reality at all unlike with a holographic image which really does exist in three-dimensional space you know you can it actually the light actually forms an yeah. entity in space whereas with a lenticular image or of course a 3d film at the cinema that 3d image is made up by your mind so I mean, that one you showed me with Jacqueline Wilson there, that is as, as 3D an object as I've ever seen. And does that only work with that downlight that, that you were showing? You have to illuminate all true holograms. You have to illuminate them with a, a source of light, a spotlight. Um, but it's a great shame that holography, in its true sense of the meaning has kind of uh, died off a little bit. It was obviously huge in the 80s and 90s. Um, but I think... And is that when it comes to prominence? Uh, you know, you're saying it was huge. <clears throat> was there something that triggered it round about that time? Was there a new bit of technology? Um, well, the history of it really is that, I mean, it was invented, arguably, to some debate, but it was invented in 1947-48 by a Hungarian-born physicist who worked in London Imperial College he couldn't actually make one because you needed a source of coherent light which is what a laser mm. is in order to make holograms as we know them and so um, nobody could make one until the laser was invented which was the early 60s and it took a little while to filter out from the scientific lab but by the late 70s very early 80s I just think it had built up a momentum um, you know, people were obviously absolutely stunned by it when they saw holographic images. 
and wanted to learn how to make them and so there was this huge sort of upwelling of people interested mm. in trying to make them and various people in this country flew to America to be taught how to make them. There was one course in New York and there was one in San Francisco at that time. Uh, nowhere in the UK in the very late 70s that you could go and learn how to make holograms. And, uh, and just people started holographic studios and started making them. And I think, I think it was helped by lasers becoming more accessible, obtainable. It was also helped by Ekla Gavart, the big photographic company making a photographic emulsion that you could use to record holograms on. Mm. So you could buy these big glass plates from Agfa at the time. They stopped making them in the mid-90s, which then put the whole industry virtually out of business. If we're talking about display holography as opposed to the so mass they, reproduced if ones. So they had the monopoly on it, mm. how can they stop making them? Was it just not profitable? For them? I think compared with everything else, it was just too small a market for them. Holography has always been incredibly difficult and highly technical and um, you know very few people really in the grand scheme of things ever learned how to make holograms um, like I said there were very few places really in the world you could even go and learn how to make holograms in terms of courses and things I mean I had to teach myself from the one or two books that existed at the time very few how would you have got into holograms from your degree well, I think most people in, in those days, they'd, they'd just see an exhibition. I mean, in, uh, in my case, I was, uh, I was doing a degree in uh, computer graphics and television. I think it was the first ever degree outside of America to teach computer graphics and stuff like that. Yeah. And uh, it also had um, illustration and photography and graphic design as well. Um, but we'd gone to London. It was based in Cornwall, of all places. Uh, <laughs> You know, this um, world-leading, unique uh, degree in the middle of the Cornish countryside. But um, we'd gone to London to see a conference on computer graphics and we had some time off and I just happened to walk past the photographer's gallery, which in those days was in Newport Street. And uh, they had the second, I think it was the second only exhibition of holograms they'd ever been in, in England or in the UK. The first having been at the Royal Academy in the late 70s. And it just caught my eye. And we, I normally start earlier on than this because I normally start by saying that all my life I've wanted to be both an artist and a scientist, or at least create images. Yeah. And I've tried all my life up until that point to find something that combined those two things, hence the reason I ended up doing computer graphics and video, really. And I just saw this hologram. I mean, the reaction, I mean, it's very hard to describe the feeling I had yeah, at that point. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's very cliched, but it's like the bolt of lightning coming out of the sky and hitting me, you know, from that millisecond, almost, I knew that was my destiny. Yeah. Very hard to explain that feeling. I mean, I didn't, from that second on, I never thought of anything else for, you know, until now, yeah. really. <laughs> I mean, I just, I went back to college, uh, or it was split between Cornwall and Plymouth Polytechnic, or universities in now. I went back to Plymouth, and I just said, I've got to try and make a hologram. Uh, I spent two years. What did you know about the procedure? Nothing. I knew nothing, of course. I mean, it was very slow because there was nobody you could really phone up and ask that I knew at the time anyway. And um, so the best I could do is really try and find a book. Libraries. Uh, and there were only, you know, a handful, if that, of books ever been written on it. Yeah. And then... Uh, 
I managed to find one um, written by somebody who's been a lifelong friend of mine since, by a guy called Fred Unterseer from San Francisco, wrote a book called Practical Holography, and it was brilliant. And um, But it still took me probably two years to actually make my first hologram. I mean, one, I don't know if it's a funny story, but I... I set up a small studio in the, the laser research department at Plymouth, which is, you know, nothing to do with art. It was a scientific department, but they had lasers. So I managed to catch a laser off the tutor of laser communications or whatever it was. And he was interested in learning himself how to make holograms. And I set a little hologram studio up in the corner of the lab. But I couldn't, and I'd expose the holograms. It's a photographic process. You're recording the wavefront of light that reflects off, off of objects which, I mean, this is where it gets technical. It, it creates an interference pattern, <clears throat> which you record on the plate, which essentially is millions and millions of little black and white lines up to, you know, a thousand in a millimeter. And you record that and you have to process it in a tray of chemicals, like the old fashioned photographs. But I couldn't do that bit at Plymouth Poly. So I'd have to walk a mile down the road to Plymouth College of Art, <laughs> where they had dark rooms yeah. to process them. So I'd make an exposure. These plates, by the way, are very expensive, you know, cost a fortune. So I'd expose one, um, put it in the back box, walk all the way to the art college to develop it, slosh it around. It would develop up black and then you bleach them and then you look at them and there'd be nothing. No image, no hologram. I thought, what the hell? You know, it, I mean, nothing during the exposure can move more than a thousandth of a millimetre. Wow. And the exposure can be up to sometimes one, two, three minutes long. Shit. And so the tolerances are crazy. You know, you have to have solid cast iron tables floating on car tire yeah, tubes. Yeah. The vibration of the cars outside of, of planes flying across, you know, through across the top, a wow. problem. Everything's a problem. So it didn't really surprise me that they weren't coming out, but it was very frustrating. And I must have been doing this for months, you know, one after one, nothing, nothing, nothing. And on one occasion, I don't know why I did this, but I didn't immediately throw it in the bin in the darkroom. I carried it back to Plymouth Poly in my hand. It was a hot summer's day. And then halfway back to the Polytechnic, I saw this orange glint of light reflect wow. off the glass. And I looked at it and there was this perfect hologram. And I, until that point, hadn't really appreciated that the emulsion needs to be perfectly dry. Yeah. Um, to the point where when you make them now, you, you uh, dry them with a hairdryer, blow dry them. Yeah. Um, and you don't see the image until that final moment when the emulsion becomes very, very, very dry. And then the image appears magically in, inside the glass, you know. So it was a, it was a wonderful day. <laughs> what, was, what was the first image that you'd produced? Oh, remember? God. I don't know how this is going to sound. I mean, bearing in mind, the object in those days had to be something that was very, very, very stable, that didn't move. Yeah, because, so it couldn't have been a plant. As I just said, if instance. anything moved, including yeah. the object itself, then it would disappear. And in fact... Uh, a very another very good friend of mine, Margaret Benyon, who got an MBE for her services to the holographic industry. She, I think, she was um, credited as being the first holographic artist in the sixties in, in the world. She actually made holograms of, for example, loaves of bread, and intentionally, as they were drying out microscopically, they would move, and you would see black areas, so like oh, yeah, negative, yeah, yeah, yeah. negative holographic space in the loaf of bread where where it actually moved, yeah. and. Um, you can use that same thing if you do somebody a uh, hologram of people, for example, you can see where their heart's beating and all that sort of thing. 
So I forgot what I was saying. Your first object that you... Yeah, so I had to choose something stable. A lot of people will choose, I mean, chess pieces are like the... Of course, yeah. In computer yeah. graphics, it's a teapot. In holography, it's chess pieces. But this is where it gets a bit cringy because uh, I, I had... Um, I was very young at the time and it was the 70s. So I had this... You're uh, justifying it, justifying it, justifying it. I had this belt buckle. You know these yeah. old belts in the 70s? These huge belt buckles. Yeah, the old cowboy thing. From a very early age, I've been oil painting since I was seven years old. And I decided, because my initial spelt the, name, the, the word ram, R-A-M, that my insignia would be a ram's head. Yeah. I think my mother had bought me for Christmas or something, this belt with this giant ram's head. Yeah. So it, it was the perfect object, perfect size, made of metal. So well, my first ever hologram was my ram's head just buckle. That's, that's perfect. <laughs> yeah. a chess piece, isn't it? Very sadly, I broke it the other day. Oh, did you? You've had it all this time? All these years. Shit. Tucked away in a box. And so, I put something on it and cracked it in half. Oh, I don't but I, I, mean, I was going to say, I mean, something I always say about holography uh, is that it is, in some ways, it's the ultimate way of making an image it's, it's the most fundamental imaging medium ever invented and i think can ever be invented um because you are you're literally making images with uh the pure energy of light um it's the the photons or the waves of light which interfere with each other mm. that you record um it's very hard to explain this but it's it's so fundamental in terms of physics. You know, there's all this stuff now about quantum physics. And one of the big experiments, the double slit experiment, which proves the existence of entanglement and quantum physics and all that spooky stuff that Einstein didn't believe. You know, I've always had this sense that I'm making images almost with the most fundamental, by the most fundamental means of the universe in yeah, a way. Yeah, you know? well, and there's talk that's of what it is. the whole universe being a hologram and black holes, event horizons on a black hole being a hologram, which is, contains all the information of the universe and all this stuff. But it's, And you can't think of anything ever being invented that's more pure or fundamental than that as a way of making images. Because it's kind of how the whole universe works. So, um, so it's, it's kind of a bit odd in a way that it's never really taken off. Because anything that important and fundamental... I mean, it will never go away for that reason. Mm. Um, we talked a bit about stereoscopic images earlier to, to begin with, which fool your brain into thinking it's 3D. Mm. Holograms are, don't do that. They, they truly are like reality. Yeah. It's a visual copy of reality. And it's the only medium that's ever been devised, invented, that does that. All the other three-dimensional imaging mediums fool the brain into thinking it's 3D when it's not really 3D. You're just looking at two flat pictures. Can it go anywhere else? Well, of course, as I said, it will be full colour one day. It will be completely animated one day. You will... I mean, I'm sure one day that... Of course, that will happen one day. But... Uh, so what, the, the speed that technology is going no, at I the know. moment... It, yeah. It could be this time next year, couldn't it? Uh, it's very hard to predict. Um, you said that you was painting at the age of seven. Hmm. Was your parents arty? No. Where did that come I have absolutely play? no idea. I, I lived in a small village in Norfolk on the beach. I went to a secondary modern school. I think there'd only been one other person from that school do a degree, go to university. 
and I don't know where it came from. I mean, my mum was a dinner lady and my dad worked in a paper mache company that made egg boxes for a living. And I, from, I know everybody says this, but from the, as long as I can remember, I just wanted to create images yeah. and make pictures. But I was also insanely interested in animals and nature at the same time. And so every picture I ever painted was of an animal um, or a plant. Yeah. So where did the science come in? Or was that just an interest that was there like the art? It was just, it seemed to just creep in. I just loved biology and zoology and animals. And I'd be breeding butterflies and going out and into the, you know, into the woods and (laughs) all that stuff, you know. Which you're still doing to this day. I'd sit at the top of trees with my sketch pad and, and, you know, when I was six, seven, eight years old and draw pictures of the sunset or whatever it was. But I was desperate to combine those two things and and I couldn't. So the first thing I did was did a foundation course at Great Yarmouth Art College in art. And then it seemed that the only thing I could do from that was a graphic designer. I didn't really want to be a graphic designer. So I thought, well, I'll try the other side of my life. And I went and did another four A-levels, sorry, another. I did two A-levels in art and I did a four A-levels in science at the local college for another two years. And then I found this, and then I thought maybe I'll be a wildlife illustrator. So I looked at this course in southern Wales uh, that did wildlife illustration. And um, I wasn't really hugely enamoured by that. It was, it was in a semi-detached house in Diffid, very few students. And they'd go off and sit in the middle of the River Severn in their waders all day long <laughs> drawing birds, which is great. But I, d- I thought, I'm not really sure about that. So then I got a place at Bath University to do zoology. And literally a couple of weeks before I was due to go there and start on the course, I accidentally saw this course in a polytechnic handbook, Plymouth Polytechnic handbook of computer graphics and television and video. And I said to my then girlfriend, which one should I do? And she said, well, if, you're, if you do the zoology one, you'll probably just end up in a white coat in some lab somewhere. If you do the other one, who knows, you might get famous. Yeah. Right, off to uh, Cornwall to do a four-year honours degree in computer graphics and television. But, I mean, and I would have probably have ended up doing... CGI. Some very good friends of mine are very high up in the CGI good. industry right now. That's probably what I've ended up doing if I hadn't walked past that exhibition at the Photographer's Gallery. So they've got a lot to answer for. What artists were you looking at at that time? Was there any specific artists? Well, I think the most famous wildlife artist at that time. And in fact, he had an exhibition in Great Yarmouth in the mid-70s. It was uh, David Shepherd which he doesn't really get a lot of kudos, I think because his images have been on so many tea towels and postcards yeah. and stuff like that. But, you know, for me, these unbelievable, beautiful paintings of elephants in, you know, in the middle of Africa, just go and sit in the middle of the savannah and paint the elephants and tigers and stuff like that. Very unfortunately, um, all these years later, uh, only a few years ago, I had the opportunity to shoot his holographic portrait. And uh, <clears throat> very sadly, he passed away before I had a chance to. Oh. I think only a couple of years ago, 2017. So that was um, that was unfortunate. But I never really mm, cared that much about anybody else. Yeah, no, know. that's that's fair enough. Do you I know? Mean, I, I I was just so absorbed by what it was that I wanted to do myself. Yeah, you're you're in a, you was in a, an industry where you're sort of pretty yeah. much breaking new ground. Well, I suppose there's an element of that. I mean, there's some fantastic holographic artists, and and over the years there has been, you know. But I don't really fix that much on other people. And, you know, when... I mean, there's this question I know you're going to ask. 
which five artists would you have in your exhibition or whatever? I can't really answer that because, I mean, I've got a very soft spot for Turner who hasn't, but living here yeah. where I do, I see the view he painted almost yeah, every yeah. day and his house is opposite my office at Twickenham Film Studios. And, uh, you know, it's absolutely beautiful. You know, I'm not going off to art galleries all the time. No. I'm not one of these people who just rattle off a whole load of names of artists. Was it Although just we've, sort of we've known each other for a few months now. So we've been to a couple of galleries and you, I know that you said that you, you want to step more into the art world than you previously have, which means showing your work a lot more <clears throat> than before. Yes. I mean, I got trapped into the technology world for far too long. It felt to me, if you don't mind me interrupting, there was artists using the technology that you'd, you'd produced for their work before you started benefiting from it. I think the thing to say is that, first of all, you can't make a holographic image unless you develop your own camera and your own technology. Mm. Um, it's not something you can go out and buy off the shelf from a shop or anything like that. I just so happen to have the right mix of knowledge, I think, you know, pure luck, really to devise a system for making holograms digitally. I actually ended up uh, building the first ever 3D digital hologram printer, which was fantastic. And I did it for myself to make images. And I made some of the world's first, if not the world's first, digital holograms, 3D digital holograms in um, the very early 90s. But I did it for myself. But the problem was that no sooner as I'd done it, other people saw what I was doing and Hey Rob, can you do one of those for yeah, me? Yeah. Uh, and um, more to the point, a guy walked in the door and said, uh, "That's a fantastic machine. If you like, can I buy the machine?" Uh, he just set up a company in China to make holograms. It was the first joint venture company in China to make security holograms. And he said, "Can I buy one for the company there? And I'll I'll give you seventy five thousand pounds, which in the mid nineties was a lot of money. Yeah, which at a time, very few, few quid now. My two children had only just been born and had a big mortgage on a house and all the rest of it. You know, so of course I said yes. I'll you know. So before I knew what happened, I was in the machine building business. Yeah, and I still at every opportunity made uh, created holograms and did the whole creative side. I shot a lot of portraits in those years, um, famously. Uh, People like uh, the Gallagher brothers from Oasis and Seal and, and of course the Queen and, and Henry Allingham, the oldest, who's then the oldest person in the world. Um, I was still doing that stuff, but I was so drawn in, dragged in almost into that whole technology side of selling machines and building machines and flying all over the world to install them and stuff, you know. And it took over probably 20 years of my life. Do you regret working that hard in that area for that amount of time? I mean, you, you couldn't have got where you are today without it. It's a difficult question. Do I regret it? This is, yeah, that's, I mean, it, that's probably the wrong way to phrase it. You had two lives you was walking. One, one <clears> was <throat> the art side. One was the yeah. technical side. I mean, I don't regret it. For, I kind of regret it a little bit because it did hold me back on the creative side, which is all I ever wanted to do. At that time, um, I was working with a, a chap called uh, Jeffrey Robb, who's now a fantastic artist and he's, you know... Uh, independent artist but we worked together for 15 years and he'd graduated from the Royal College of Art where I worked and I I gave him a job straight out from the Royal College of Art when he graduated and what was like a technician we worked together as equal partners even though it was my business at that time uh, and just doing everything creating holograms design building machines I mean just whatever the company yeah. needed to do but he also was 
desperate to be an artist. And, uh, and all through those years, we'd say to each other, look, let's just sell enough machines to make enough money that we don't have to do it anymore. Yeah. And we can just stop doing it or maybe sell that part or get somebody else to run it. And then just you and I concentrate on being creative, you know, and doing the artwork. And um, what happened was we, my studio was here on Richmond Hill for all those years. And, uh, but the landlord um, sold it to developers and uh, so we had to move so he moved so I said well you move out I'll move the technology side in one direction because that was my baby and uh, Jeff was instrumental in the company uh, developing lenticular imaging and so he took that side in his direction and um, soon after that uh, became independent and started doing his art that was probably 10 years ago now so he basically left and I was kind of left with the technology side so I then struggled a few more years to um not struggled but I carried on selling and delivering machines to different companies and and then it was only in uh, probably in around um five or six years ago I said look you know I'm I'm not young anymore. If I don't do this now, <laughs> it's never going to happen. It's now or never, yeah. It really is now or never. So I made this huge, huge effort to essentially have nothing more to do with the technology side, or very little. And in fact, it's all run now by a chap in Oxford, another Good. company in Oxford. Yeah. Um, just, yeah. to, just to free up more time. Now, we just floated over the Queen, which was 2003. Well, the, f- the commission was in 2003. The first sitting was in 2003. Uh, however, there was a second sitting in 2004. Got you. From what I understand, the commission, Chris Levine got the commission uh, to make a holographic image of the Queen for the Jersey Heritage Trust. Yes. Um, obviously, he brought in the, the best man for it, which was yourself. Well, what essentially happened was that he toured an exhibition around the world of holographic work. And in that exhibition were some of my holographic images. Oh, okay. Namely, uh, portraits that I shot of Seal and uh, Liam Gallagher. A representative or a friend of the Jersey Heritage Trust had seen the exhibition, seen the holographic portraits, gone back to Jersey and said, you know, you should consider commissioning a holographic portrait, which you can imagine would have been incredibly brave of them. They could have just opted for a traditional painting or oh so but just by chance they went with they asked chris levine <clears throat> rather than well because you. um they'd seen my portraits in this exhibition they uh, ended up commissioning chris for the portrait oh wow um so um so then chris of course having um, never made a hologram or a portrait for that matter at that time um i'd worked with chris several times before when Chris ran a company, it was a basic a design and marketing company in London called IC Holographic. And uh, it was one of the first companies to promote holographic images as commercial yeah. pieces. So he would get jobs for big blue chip companies like Absolute Vodka or, or British Airways or whoever uh, to supply them with a hologram. And then very often, more often than not, would then... Um, commissioned me to yeah. create and make the hologram. Yeah, just a subcontractor, yeah. yes. It was, uh, so having got the commission, he then called me and said, wow. can we work together on the hologram? Pretty cool moment, eh? And I said yes. Well, I didn't immediately say yes, but I 
essentially agreed on the basis that it would be um, a joint and equal creative collaboration between the two of us and that was agreed and that's what we did essentially and um, and how was it going there Buckingham Palace it was surreal I mean you obviously what can what can I say you know I mean I it took the best part two weeks to build the studio I had to build my entire studio at the palace in the yellow drawing room uh, every day and I'm um, going to um, lunch in the, the Buckingham Palace nice. canteen yeah <laughs> and um yeah, I mean, it was surreal, surreal, you can imagine. Doing lots of tests. All of this, I built a brand new camera system just for that one shot. It was decided that it would be shot in the yellow drawing room because that's where she uh, prefers to be painted. Um, okay. She likes the light because it's got windows on two sides and it's where the famous photos of Princess Diana and everything mm. were shot. It's a couple of rooms along from the room where the balcony is. Oh, yeah. Which was one of the highlights because I walked past once on one occasion and I said to the, the gentleman that was with us, I said, um, you know, is that the room that leads out to the balcony? And he said, yes, come and have a look. Nice. So we took through the doors open and found ourselves the other side of the window of that balcony. Oh, wow. With the, the, the history. And there was hundreds of thousands of people cheering you. But the weirdest thing was, <laughs> only a few months before, I'd been the other side in the mall looking up at that balcony because yeah. it was the, um, the Golden Jubilee. Excellent. And um, I thought, how did this happen? Yeah. You know? Yeah, so the whole camera was designed. I had six weeks, essentially, to design, build, write the software and everything. So you were saying earlier system. about how you had to use your belt buckle or a chest piece because it can't move. Uh, I presume technology has moved on well, a lot now where it can slightly. You see, this is where we have to be careful. Because okay, sorry. It's referred to in the press very often as a hologram or a holographic commission, but the portrait that people have seen maybe in the National Portrait Gallery or wherever is not a hologram it's a lenticular okay. so is lenticulars that... are made with photographic sequences stereographic sequences um, it, it, it was discussed at the time that maybe uh, we could make a true holographic portrait of her but she would have had to have come to my studio in Richmond which I don't think was an option at the time there was no way that you could I mean you could take yeah. all of that equipment and put it she would get place. identified on the bus wouldn't she <laughs> Is en route between yeah. Buckingham Palace and Windsor Castle. But um, no, it's a lot simpler to photograph her. Yeah. But uh, there weren't really any 3D camera systems available at that time. I mean, I'd already built one or two that I'd used in previous years, but um, the commission was so huge, you know, I decided that I would build a brand new and I would spend every penny we were paid to do the job on building that camera system. In fact, I lost a lot of money on it in the end, but that's yeah. another story. Yeah, it didn't yeah. matter because no. you were making history. Yeah, of course. So it was uh, at one point the Duke of Edinburgh walked in unannounced um, and uh, we were told that he's very, very interested in new technology generally. Nice. And that was fantastic. He stood there and asked lots and lots of technical questions, how it worked, yeah. and which way the camera went and everything. So, yeah, so that was two weeks beforehand and then the day dawned, of course, you know, three o'clock in the afternoon. The door opened. I will have a shout out for Miss Angela Kelly though, because she's a wonderful, wonderful woman. And she is. She is the Queen's. She was at that time the Queen's PA and dresser, okay, yeah. and had been for ten years, and I believe she still is. And so it's been twenty-six years now. But she's this wonderful um, Liverpudlian woman, yeah. I believe, the daughter of a docker, with a broad uh, scarce accent, nice. and you don't really expect it. No. I don't know how that sounds, but you don't kind of you expect everybody to talk with posh of voices. Of course, of course. <laughs> and uh, but she was fantastic because really she just put everybody at ease. Yeah. 
made everybody almost too much, I've got to say. Halfway through the shoot, I was thinking it was almost getting a little bit too relaxed. You know? Oh, but wasn't that exactly what you need? You People don't need chatting, that high tension, do you? Chatting and telling jokes. Um, but it, no, it, it, she was great. Really good. Yeah. So did they come to have a sitting in front of you? So the door opened, obviously, the Queen walks in. Heart beating fast. <laughs> but it, it, it's very surreal because you sort of pinch yourself. It's not, it's not like, it's not really the Queen. Mm. I don't know. Very strange. Well, it was quite <laughs> amusing because they brought the crown in a big box. There was a point where uh, I think Angela opened the box and the, you sort of kind of expected maybe somebody would take it out and place it on the I Queen's mean, head. Keep glass, uh, yeah. Uh, uh, but the Queen just basically grabbed it. <laughs> and walked, I don't think it's the first time she's put it on, is it? Walked over to this great big mirror on the wall and sort of put it on her own head, you know, and sort of made sure it was straight and like, she'd, like you'd put a hat on. Yeah. And in fact, there's a great picture that was taken by Nina Duncan, who is one of the one of our assistants, who was there to shoot, you know, shoot the event, yeah. as it were, record the event. And uh, she took one of the Queen putting the crown on in front of the mirror, which was on the front of the Sunday Times magazine. Nice. Soon afterwards. So then you, you've you've taken, you've got the image, um, your technology's done. I presume she was a, a decent sitter. She's done it a few times. <clears throat> Well, the one thing that you have to do with this technology, it's a little bit like, I sometimes say it's the Fox Talbot days of holography. You have to sit very, very still because there's one camera and that one camera passes Switch, by yeah. as quickly as you can do it, but still, it still takes quite a long time to get from one end to the other. You can't really have, you, can, you could have multiple cameras, but you can't get them close enough together. So really the technique of choice is still to use a single camera that is um, under computer control moves past. But the Queen, because I wanted to take uh, 200 images, <clears throat> the Queen had to sit still for over eight seconds. Mm. And uh, that's very difficult for most people to do, but I've got to say the Queen was perfect at doing it. I think, you know, she's obviously very used to sitting still, yeah, <laughs> perhaps yeah. for long periods of time. So, uh, you know, she was fantastic at well, doing that. Well, I've seen the results <clears throat> of that when I, when I was here last time in the lenticular you've got I mean I'm not just saying it for this but it was breathtaking it was quite amazing I mean I've seen it a couple of times I've, I've seen it in situ at, at Twickenham mm -hmm. yes it is a and, and it, that's the image that's on the front of the Time magazine yes and on the £100 note Jersey £100 note and is, is that in circulation yet? yeah it's in circulation and the stamps the Jubilee stamps uh, I they very kindly commissioned me again in, I think, 2011 to make the world's first postage stamp. With and the you had to go on the procedure again? No, no, no. I had to. I used the original you used images. The images got you, okay. But I was sort of coming back to you. You asked me a while back, did, did I regret spending 20 years developing and building holographic machines and developing new technologies? And I kind of did in one way because it held me back on the creative side. But on the other hand, if I hadn't have done that, there's certain things I would never course, have been able course. to do. They go hand in hand. And one of those things was to make what I think possibly is, I mean, I keep saying world first, world first, but I think it might well have been the world's first um, holographic portrait miniature. Nice. So this is a very small, tiny portrait, a couple of centimetres high. Because miniatures, are, like miniatures <clears throat> in painting are making an appearance again. Well, it was interesting because, um, well, I'll first of all say that uh, I mentioned we had two shoots, two sittings. And the first sitting, um, 
it didn't go brilliantly well. Uh, honestly, the, 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 there were certain things happening in the Queen's life that um, I think she was qu quite worried about, which I won't go into. Um, but I had another problem whereby this camera, the camera I'd chosen was the highest resolution, fastest digital video camera in the world. It had only just been developed by a Canadian company called Dolce and they'd flown one out. I think there are only two of these cameras in the whole world. Wow. One in Canada and one in Germany and they flew the one from Canada to me to use because I'm trying to get the camera to move as quickly as I can and this camera was able to grab 30 images a second digitally even in those days, 2003, and store them directly onto the hard drive of the computer. Having said that, it was 1600 by 1200 pixels, which of us by today's standards, that's a yeah, lower resolution yeah, yeah. than an iPhone. But in those days, it was like huge of resolution, course. you know. And uh, So was it, was it you that captured the image of the Queen with her eyes shut? Let me finish that story first. Sorry. I was going to say the camera went wrong halfway through the oh, street. Oh, shit. Yeah. It, it started getting a lot of noise bands passing up and down it. And of course, we'd been, I'd been using it for one or two weeks before that, testing it doing shots and not once had it failed and then of course typically halfway through the shoot now it wouldn't have stopped us making a I think a beautiful portrait from those mm. images but as I as we were walking back to Victoria tube station after the shoot I said to Chris I said look I really think we should try and get another sitting and he said um, obviously it's going to be very difficult they very rarely give yeah. artists a second chance you know I said I know well we'll see what we can do he said well I'll, I'll I'll make the call tomorrow and see see what I can do. And um, uh, thankfully, they granted us a second sitting six months further on in 2004. And the second sitting was like absolute chalk and cheese. I completely redesigned the camera by that point anyway, yeah. so technically it was much higher quality. And the Queen just sort of was in a fantastic mood, smiling, laughing. And, and, um, and it was just a great shoot. And it's funny how that can happen, you know, little things yeah. that are nothing to do with you that might be happening yeah, in the background. Yeah, that's out of both your control. Can affect the shoot. And, um, but it was a brilliant shoot, and um, she was wearing a dark top at that point, which I think is something that Chris had chosen. And I, I just decided halfway through the shoot, this just isn't working. Because it's against the black background, the whole thing was fading away. So it's just a head floating. I, so I turned around to Angela and I said, Angela, I really think we need something white, which is a lot more hologenic. Yeah. She said, do you want me to go off to the wardrobe and see what I can find? I said, oh, yes, please. So she off she went to the wardrobe. She came back with these five white tops, one of which was the ermine stole. Wow. And we all just looked at it and went, poof, that's yeah, the one. Yeah. And I think, you know, it has proven to be one of the big features of the, the portrait, that um, white ermine stole in 3D. You can almost feel the fluffy yeah, texture yeah. of it coming out of the hologram. So that was, that again, small things like that happen that, that make a big, big difference. But uh, now my understanding about the Queen with her eyes closed, of course, it was shot of her as she posed for Chris and I by Nina Duncan, who, oh, well, basically, she, she was taking the she set a camera on a tripod in front of the Queen, in front of my camera, essentially, and was... Uh, taking pictures throughout the whole documenting, shoot, yeah. documenting the shoot. I believe that that's how that one came about. Oh, that's not a bad image to have, is it? And then Chris obviously took it and manipulated it. I think he's done all right out of that one, hasn't he? That was, uh, a, that was a wise decision. The rest is to, history, as yeah, they say. of course. Um, you peaked with the Queen, I suppose, but I was going to mention Carl Lagerfeld in, in 2015 and Angelina Jolie. 
2016, they were, they were two quite prominent images yeah. as well, weren't they? Well, I think the, the Karl Lagerfeld was the first big, more commercial type photography shoot yeah. I'd ever kind of done. Essentially, Jefferson Hack, uh, who owns uh, another magazine, uh, Dazed and Confused, had seen the Queen and decided he wanted the world's first ever holographic or 3D fashion magazine cover. It was the um, another magazine's 15th anniversary. And so he commissioned me to um, shoot Carl's portrait, which was, again, incredible experience. I actually had to drive to Paris in a transit van with all my equipment, set the whole thing up in his studio in Rue de Lille, which opposite the Louvre Gallery. Nice. He has had his own photography studio. And uh, of course. I didn't have two weeks that time. I only had about two hours. And uh, But Carl obviously was fantastic. He, being a photographer himself, a very renowned photographer. Was he taking a, quite an interest in you? Yeah, he was fascinated. He was very fascinated by it. And, um, and I think we got a great shot of Carl. Um, I know Angelina Jolie took quite an interest as well, didn't she? Well, Angelina... Yeah, you Angelina well was her, equally equally crazy because again I had to shoot it in Hollywood in the Red Studios, and um, so I had to f- again fly everything there, set the whole thing up the day before. What happened actually was that she walked in, having set the whole thing up to do shots of a specific type. Now those situations where you're doing a campaign for LVMH Gala to launch a new perfume, whatever. It's all, and the same with Carl, it's all very controlled by the creative directors mm. of the companies. Um, you don't often get a huge amount of creative. Yeah, way. you've got a tight brief to follow. The brief is quite tight. And in fact, when we arrived, um, Tom Munro, the photographer, was shooting all the 2D stills. And then I had to very much shoot 3D portraits in that same style. So we'd set everything up to do something which was very high contrast, black and white. And um, Angelina walked in, and uh, the first thing she said was, Oh, Rob, hi, I've seen your portrait of the Queen. I absolutely adore it. Can you do one of me looking like that? Wow. First, before we do yeah. the Guerlain shots. And we kind so of. All, to try and make it look well, we, we kind of all <laughs> We kind of all looked at each other because we'd just spent like the whole day before setting the whole thing up. Yeah. And we had to basically take it all down, set up new lighting because the Queen was very soft lighting. So we had to set up new lighting, very soft lighting. She. Um, ran off to the Winnebago and uh, she said, I have a shawl that'll look a little bit like the Queen's ermine stole. So she found a shawl, put this shawl around her and put her hair up, looking quite stately, came back. I did that shot of her, which she loved. And um, I jokingly said, of course, that maybe one day it will be in the foyer of the United Nations. And uh, I think she thought that was quite a good idea. Yeah. So how long was it before she asked? She pretty much asked for the commission to you doing it. Uh, well, the whole commission came about through a company in New York, a, a big advertising company that does all the advertising for LVMH. Mm. Uh, they'd decided that it would be a good idea to show 3D lenticular portraits in the top stores all over the world to launch the perfume. So Angelina, obviously, she, you know, it wasn't her decision yeah. as such. She was well. She she had to agree to do it. Of course, obviously, it all happens quite quickly. Yeah, the after bits takes forever. I, I then wasn't allowed to tell anybody I'd done it for a year until the perfume was launched a year later. Yeah, it's this is very hard for people who are uh, used to commissioning photographers. You know, 
Maria Testino or whatever to, to do a shoot because a photography commission the guy shoots the photographs and gives the here's the CD of photographs and that's the end of it the next time he sees them they're in the yeah, road magazine yeah. or whatever for me that's just the beginning um, there's a huge creative process after you've shot the images they then have to be processed all the various distortions contained within the images that you get in such a the image sequence have to be taken out um, and of course you have to create the lenticular images yeah um, it's not just a question of printing them you know the, the the light sculptures as I prefer to call them you then have to create so there's there's uh, same with the queen there's all manner of creative decisions that affect the visual end result that have to be made once you've shot mm. the pictures after you've shot the pictures you can determine how much depth there is in the image for example obviously the composition and stuff like that so all of that just for one image can take several weeks. Well, I know you've worked with a lot of like blue chip companies like Rolls Royce, Aston Martin, Ferrari, um, De Beers. They were obviously all in my more commercial days. Yeah, commercial. But from from all of the the works that you've done, which one do you think has got the most emotional pull to you? Well, you see, because I was going to mention the Queen. I mean, we've already talked, spent an hour talking about the Queen. But the thing with the, you know, there's both the positive emotion, incredible excitement, the sheer relief that it went well, the pride, you know, I grew up in the 70s, I went to see Anne Norwich for her Silver Jubilee, my mum and I, you know, so in terms of pure emotion, it doesn't get it's better a, than It's that. an absolutely stunning image. Really? How do you relax? Okay, how do I relax? Now, that's quite a good one because I'm going to admit something I've never told anybody before. 20 years ago, I was diagnosed with uh, ME, chronic fatigue syndrome. Yeah. And I think it was just a pure stress of running the company, running the business. At that time, we had a lot of legal issues with different things, going to court and stuff. And I just sort of crashed and burned one day. And I decided to, at that might my wife is French my children are half half if you like and um, so I decided at that time well a few years later to move to France uh, so I moved to the Pyrenees Mountains in France which before I say anything more almost anybody can do or at least they could have done before Brexit mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, the properties are you know they're yeah, you can buy a castle for the price of a flat in London you yeah. know so it's a, so you live in a castle well no I don't <laughs> I live in an old 200 year old farmhouse but it is absolutely idyllic and paradise and, and so my way of relaxing is to garden I love gardening home to France nice. and all the flowers I shoot for my naturalium series are all grown by me that's where I was just going to come to you naturalium so I relax by gardening and, um, and I wasn't going to say running because everybody else has said running not Even though I do run, but um, it's really gardening, and I've got to say, having a bath, as strange as that may sound. No, why not? I have a bath every day, every evening, and I just that is if wind I wind down and just the wine, and all the best ideas come while I'm in the bath. Nice, it's strange how that happens. Yeah, naturally, in that you just mentioned, mm. beautiful flowers put into lenticular, as stunning as you're ever going to see a, a flower. Yeah, although the fact that they're flowers to me is less important than the fact that they're these sculptural entities, mm. really. I mean, having spent 
35, 40 years of my life making holograms, which I said earlier, is sort of you're using the stuff of the universe to make those images, really. You're using pure energy, pure light. And, and so you think a lot about that whole stuff, that whole side of life, universe, quantum physics. I became obsessed by trying to understand quantum physics, although I don't think anybody will ever be able no. to understand it. It's probably beyond our human capabilities, but you find yourself thinking about all of that stuff a lot. The fact that the entire world is really everything you see, matter, there's no such thing as matter, it's all made of energy. Nobody really knows what energy even is, but it's all made of it. And, um, and so I found myself mostly in the bath dwelling upon you know reality what is reality when you make holograms you know you can fool people 100 percent into yeah. thinking that what's in that hologram is actually there mm. there is no difference and so you think you know a huge amount about reality and perception and how we view the world and the universe and all of that sort of thing and i found myself at one point looking at watching a quantum physics program on youtube or wherever and of course, it talks about Einstein's famous equation E equals mc squared, which essentially tells you how much energy a piece of matter is made of. And if you do the calculations, I did the calculations for a flower. And I was bowled over by the fact that in just one flower, there's enough energy to, or the same amount of energy as a candle would burn in a billion years. One billion years. That's how, I guess, nuclear bombs are yeah, so yeah, devastating. Condensed, yeah. You know, but um, so I think that uh, just in one flower candle, you know, if you could if you could extract that energy, use that energy somehow, you could you, your candle would stay alive for that one billion. I think it's more like eight thousand million, but let's say yeah. one billion years. I mean, it's just round it up. So I sort of wanted round it up to the nearest billion. I, I kind of wanted. I, I kind of wanted really. I mean, there is the beauty of flowers and just making beautiful images of flowers, but I just really wanted to kind of try and express. All of that, mm. really, that energy and the fact that you're making those images with energy and they're backlit, so you're, they're lighting up with energy, they're floating with energy. Yeah. Um, they're depicted without stalks for that reason too because I'd rather see them more as sculptural entities, natural yeah. sculptures. Yeah, the, the stalk gives it a sort of ground. As opposed to a botanical illustration yeah. of a flower. But the thing is that my more recent work has involved shooting... Um, flowers that don't look like flowers mm. um, so looking for even more sculptural entities that are less obviously flowers mm. um, but still very very beautiful so that's really yeah and the, the project you're up at the moment is full circle from when you was a child yeah well yeah and that, well obviously consciously I think I mean wildlife but but with a they're not just pictures of animals no they, they, for me, you, it's an examination they look, of. They look like the, the flowers. Objects, entities, what the world is made of, mm. albeit natural ones. But I mean, I'm a great uh, conservationist as well. Your your last question is: if I hadn't been a, an artist, <laughs> what would you be? I'd have probably be studying birdwing butterflies in Papua New Guinea nice. or something like that in the jungle. And in fact, my daughter. At, did a zoology degree <laughs> so um, 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 there's a little bit of me still a little bit envious that I didn't end up being a wildlife photographer or whatever yeah well you know I mean by which I mean making films and things but you can't do everything life is very short 
you know. Have you got anything coming well, up? Well, I've got at the two exhibitions, maybe three coming up, but I don't really want to say where they are at this point until they're more sort of solidified. Okay. Um, but of course, I will as soon as, as soon as it's all one hundred percent, you know, eyes dotted and t's crossed. But I do have two. I've had two one meter square works in the reception in the foyer of the hospital club. It's um, a private members club for the creative industries, but anybody can walk in and see them because uh, you don't need to be a member to walk into yeah. the reception yeah. area. And where can anybody see your work online, website or social media? Well, it's rob-monday.com. I, uh, I missed robmonday.com by a day. Oh. Uh, it turns out Rob Monday is a great filmmaker, uh, I think living in Bournemouth. Um, but he has on his homepage of his website, Rob Monday, not the holographer. Oh, great. <laughs> oh, so it's a little happy... So there's a lot of confusion, yes. Yeah. But so oh, mine... happy Mondays. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Mine is rob, rob-monday.com and my Instagram is just Monday Space, Excellent. And that's Monday with a U, not with an O. That's superb. Well, as I said, Thank that's you. all my questions asked. Right. Thank you very much. Brilliant. How about that? Rob Monday perfectly merging science and art to produce these pristine artworks. As you heard there, Rob's work involves absolute precision. Talking after this podcast... Rob mentioned that he's in the final stages of a creation which will enable him to take the lenticular production process out of the studio, making it pretty much mobile. But you'll find out more about that later on in the year when this project comes to light, once this godforsaken situation's calmed down a bit. Although talking of the coronavirus, I'd like to quickly mention the Artist Support Pledge which was created by artist Matthew Burrows on social media. He suggested that artists unite to sell their artworks on social media under the hashtag Artist Support Pledge. He's saying the artwork should be valued at no more than £200, and each time an artist reaches the value of £1,000, they purchase an artwork from another artist who's selling underneath the same hashtag. It is a simply beautiful idea. So if you're an artist, sell under the hashtag Artist Support Pledge. And if you are a buyer or collector, why would you even think of looking anywhere else? Hashtag Artist Support Pledge. As I said during the intro, the Ministry of Arts podcast will be back in two weeks. So until then... Wherever you happen to be listening to this podcast around the world, keep safe and fucking good luck. Ta-da. The number one selling product of its kind with over 20 years of research and innovation. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or 
or Lambert-Eden syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com.